1: This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
2: This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. His name is Danny Blanchflower. And if you are at all interested in all manner of economic wonkery, well then this is the podcast for you. We talk about everything from unhappiness to unemployment to what really constitutes full employment to the rise of pain complaints in the United States and how it's related to the stresses caused by the financial crisis, as well as the ongoing flat wages that the United States have seen over the past 30 years. Uh, We get into all manner of fascinating discussion of Beveridge, of Keynes of Skidelsky, of why the United States is fairly unique, both in terms of our housing market and our employment market and why the U.S. is now exporting stress and discomfort and economic anxiety to the rest of the world. It's really an absolutely fascinating conversation. Uh, I enjoyed it, and I think you will also, with no further ado, my conversation with Danny Blanchflower.
1: This is Masters in Business
2: with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Danny Blanchflower. He has a storied history in the world of monetary policy and labor economics. He is currently a professor at Dartmouth where he teaches economics. He is a former member of the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England. Currently, he is a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and he is the author of a new book called Not Working... Where have all the good jobs gone? Danny Blanchflower, welcome to Bloomberg. Great to see you, Barry. Good to be here. <laughs> yes, good to see you again. So so let's get into your background a little bit right. before we start getting to the specifics of the book. You're a labor economist. What exactly is that, and how did you way, find your way into that specialty?
1: Um, well, lab- labor economics is the study of work. Uh, it's the study of jobs about why people have got jobs, why they haven't. uh, And it's about the price of labor. So it's about wages. It's about compensation. Actually, I got into it, started to think about kids, starting to think about unemployment of the young. And in the 1980s in the UK, that was a really big deal. Mm -hmm. So I started to think about that. And it just grew from there. And then, then in the end, I became a monetary policymaker, and the labor market turned out to be central to everything. So started out being a labor economist, did some macro, but it turns out now the big issues around the world in macroeconomics are about labor economics. So it's been a long journey, but it's been kind of a good one.
2: So let's talk a little bit about your time at the Monetary Policy Committee at the Bank of England. We're recording this on a day when Mario Monti basically is announcing that They'll do anything to support the economy, which President Trump here in the United States declared unfair. For listeners who may not be familiar with you, you joined the Bank of England in 2006 just as the financial crisis was starting to blossom, for lack of a better word. What was that experience like?
1: Well- I was told at the beginning, I remember Gordon Brown told me, the, the, the hope is for you that central bank is going to be boring. Right. That's not, that's not exactly how it turned out. Um, and I think the big deal for me was I was going back and forth every three weeks between the U.S. and the U.K. And I think the big insight for me was that the things I saw in the U.S. started to occur in the U.K. a few months later. And the first big deal for me was the failure of Northern Rock. Uh-huh. There were thousands of people in the streets standing outside the branches of that bank for the first time in 100 years. So that was your sort of starter.
2: We had Bear Stearns here, right. not a depository bank. Right. The closest thing was probably Washington Mutual or there were some other banks.
1: Countrywide, perhaps.
2: Right, where, where there was a run on the banks. What is the guarantee from... The UK equivalent of the Federal Deposit Insurance Company.
1: Essentially, that was the issue. There really wasn't one. Mm-hmm. And so by the, by the end of the, of the week, where, and when essentially the, the, the money at the Northern Rock ran out, the website failed on the Wednesday. There was no guarantee essentially from the government. And the only way to stop it was to actually introduce one. And that's what stopped the run. But that was a year before the market collapsed. I started to think that we were really disappearing into a hole. So I started on my own to start to vote for rate cuts, and I voted for rate cuts for a really long time on my own. And I kept saying, "There's a horrible recession coming." Nobody else on the committee was really along with me. And then we got to September two thousand and eight, and all and hell broke all loose. hell broke loose. And I and I remember thinking, um, I did not expect to be in a position where in three successive months. My committee, including me, voted for 50, 150, and 100 basis wow. point cuts in three months. And then we kept going, and then we did QE. I mean, this was literally like the world was just dropping off a cliff. So it was, certainly was not boring. It was scary. Um, and, and in a sense, the story, I think, was that economics told us very little about what to do there. How low could we go? Could we go to zero? Could we go below zero when you do quantitative easing? How much? What sort of easing? When do you do it? How many auctions a week do you have? So we didn't know any of that stuff. So I think it was really scary and exhausting. So I have a pet theory, which I'll come back to
2: again later, that economists always use the normal cyclical expansion contraction cycle as their frame of reference. And so when you see something much more substantial coming along, a credit-driven crisis, a financial crisis, unless you're looking at it from the correct perspective to a regular economic analyst... They're not seeing
1: it. Barry, I think that's 100% right. And what's happened, economists said to me, you should never expect um, central banks or economists to see turning points. I think that's complete nonsense. I think what you have to have is you can't just look at the mechanical things. You have to look at what I call the economics of walking about, exactly as you said. Think about what happened at the last great financial crisis, the great crash, and think about what happened. And there were lots of indicators. The best indicators, actually, at the bank, were what's called the bank's agent scores. And the agents would go around the country and report things. And when you looked at that, the world had dropped off a cliff by around May, Oh wait, and nobody was listening to it. The economists weren't listening to it. So in fact, you, at those big turning points, you have to look around you, look at different measures. And it was quite clear across Europe and in the United States, all these countries were going down together. And that was a really big deal. So I agree with you completely. Let's talk about a quote right in the beginning of the book. What the
2: whole world wants is a good job. Discuss.
1: Yeah, I, I started working on this book um, and I was reading uh, some results from Gallup. And for some reason, I went to the front of their, of their page. And they literally, and I start out with this, they literally say, um, here's one of Gallup's most important discoveries. They've been doing this since the 1930s. What the whole world wants is a good job. So that's the theme of the book. And I think what we've seen in the last decade is the loss of those good jobs. Um, and, and the result of it has been populist movements around the world people hurting, and the connection I make in the book is that central banks and other policymakers in the US especially, say we're at full employment, and the Mm -hmm. theme of the book is, well, if we were at full employment, people wouldn't be hurting this way. And so I document that, and a good example in the UK is we're 11 years in now from the start of that Great Recession. Real wages today in the UK are 6% below what they were in February 2008, and this, in the UK anyway it's the third slowest recovery ever mm-hmm. the last one 300 years ago was the south sea bubble and the one before that 600 years ago was the black death and so, so which was good for productivity right bubonic plague is excellent yeah, yeah. for no, no, productivity but, so, of course but, so anyway so the logic is that we have had very slow recoveries and i think driven by macro errors and now we see economies slowing but after 10 years of recovery still people are hurting so the big question is what's going on and why is it that, that people are hurting and i I think the story is lack of good jobs, if you like, an expectation that things are going to be better in the future. And Deaton and Case have documented that essentially the driving force behind the deaths of despair they talk about is a failure in the labor market. So
2: so let's talk about some of those mistakes. And we'll start with the UK before we move to the US. Mm -hmm. The UK had a policy of a misguided policy, I would call it, of austerity. We've learned the lesson from Keynes. In the midst of a financial crisis, you cut taxes, increase government spending, let the public sector right. step in for the private sector. That didn't happen in the UK.
1: Well, it happened. Um, we, we saw the, the crash, the, the downturn, and then um, the Bank of England threw everything it had at it. Monetary policy, Monetary, but not fiscal. fiscal. No, but then fiscal policy. Gordon Brown threw all sorts of um, things at it, reduced taxes, increased spending- and but then, it, was,
2: it was not like a, hey, this is a depression coming, well, no, kick it, out the jams. It no, was sort of, sort of m-
1: modest. Modest. Recovery came, a pretty reasonable recovery. And then austerity came in 2010. And every data series you can show in the UK just turned flat. Right. So output was growing. And then austerity, which I call reckless, failed, um, turned downwards. Keynes precisely warned – there's an article I talk about in the book. In 1931, Keynes warned about the long dragons of dragging conditions of semi-slump that follow the crash. Right. And unless you come in there and, and put public spending in – then you'll see slowing. The argument that George Osborne, who was chancellor, made was that if you cut public spending, the private sector will step into the fold, completely contrary to Keynes, yeah, it's and of course also, that failed.
2: It, it's also not
1: how it works. Not how it works at all. Well, you at have all.
2: to look at history. So didn't anybody say... Dude, what are you doing? This is not reality. You're making this up.
1: Me, a lot. I called him Slasher Osborne. Lord Skidelsky and I wrote them, who was Keynes' biographer. We wrote a series of articles together saying, this is an absolute disaster. So what you basically see is very weak recovery, no growth in real wages. And I think that austerity almost exactly leads to the vote for Brexit, precisely in the places that hurt the most the coal towns, the towns that have not seen uh, much growth over the years. Brexit is directly attributable to the failures brought about by reckless, failed austerity.
2: Austerity leads to Brexit. Let's bring this to the United States. There was a whole bunch of government interventions, both on the monetary side and the fiscal side, designed to free up the frozen credit market. And then when we moved to fiscal stimulus— Some people have called it an $800 billion stimulus when it should have been three or four trillion, and it was temporary tax cuts and temporary uh, extension of unemployment benefits, but it wasn't the sort of large post-depression policies we saw. And Into that void stepped the Fed. I have made the argument that the Fed should have let it all crash and burn, let everybody in Congress get fired. And bring in a new batch. Had they done that, we wouldn't have had the Tea Party. We wouldn't have had the rise of populism. It would have hurt more at the time, but the the recovery would have been faster. Or tell me I'm wrong.
1: Well, hindsight, perhaps. I said it I then, mean, so it's well, not no, no, hindsight. No, well, well, that's fine. I mean, I, but I think the answer is that all the things you say about there was not enough fiscal stimulus. Think about, in a sense, the. The impact on growth of the $2 trillion tax cut, not that great. Perhaps it would have been better earlier. The big thing that Keynes talked about, and we should have You mean the 2017 tax cut?
2: That should have happened but, uh, in I agree with 2000, that. 2009, exactly. 2010.
1: And the big deal would have been an infrastructure spend, yep. which would have put um, th- boots on the ground. Boots on, construction workers. This was, a, this was a housing market crash. All these construction workers, you'd have put those folks back to work. So what's happened, and I think the best indicator Forget the unemployment rate. We'll get to talking about the underemployment rate now in a sec. But the employment rate, that's just the proportion of people who are working. Today, that's two and a half percentage points below what it was in 2008 and about three below what it was in 2003-04. So that says the economy hasn't recovered. It says the labour market hasn't recovered. um, And that's a result of not doing what you said. But I think you're completely right. Um, the, The lack of public spending was actually the big effect. So in the book, I talk about now what's happened is we, we central banks say, oh, we're at full employment. We clearly are not. And now you've put the brakes on. And basically what you've done is you've, you've slowed the economy down at a time when there's, a, when there's essentially a, a global slowing. You've generated a trade war. And the, as I say, the Fed raised rates. And now we've got another era, slowing coming. Looks much like what happened earlier, perhaps to a lesser degree. But it looks to me like the economy's turn. So, in the book, you talk about the rise of something fairly
2: specific to America. Not only stress and unhappiness, but physical pain. Pain is rising in America?
1: It's shocking. Um, the evidence is actually that's exactly right. Uh, we've done a survey we looked at in a paper that accompanies the book out this month where we asked people around the world for their levels of pain. And essentially, Americans are twice as likely to say they're in pain than other places.
2: That's astonishing. I know.
1: And so there's evidence from doctor visits, a quarter of all visits to a primary care physician. People report they're in chronic pain. So so this, and, and the other thing to say about it of course is that at the same time as this the huge rise in opioid prescriptions no to deal about with that. the pain so what you see is i mean what you're seeing is a rise in the opioid prescriptions to deal with the pain and the pain keeps on rising but the reality is we're not exactly sure whether people really are in pain or they say they're in pain i mean they say they're in pain maybe they are in pain
2: very, very often when people are stressed out exactly. what looks like a minor yes, ailment or exactly. pain becomes magnified. Exactly. So how, how significant, and I have to share a quick anecdote. In the middle of the financial crisis, I had a trip to London or uh, and Amsterdam, and I was shocked that, uh, look, unemployment's over 10% in the United States, you can walk down the streets of New York, and, and, and admittedly, New York is a finance town, mm-hmm. and, and the crisis hit finance really intensely. But you can just feel the stress levels in Manhattan much higher. Amsterdam was like people having a beer in the middle of the afternoon. The stress levels, even in the midst of the storm, they were moderate compared to here.
1: Well, you're starting to see a big rise in the UK. So we have another paper where we actually track something which is pretty interesting, which is in the UK, since 2013, happiness on various measures has been rising steadily. But worryingly, so has depression and anxiety. So you have the two things rising. Some people are doing just fine. Others aren't doing just fine. And, and obviously the problem is that the ones who aren't doing just fine see the others who are. And so that's a big part of the story. But around the world we see a rise in sort of isolation, loneliness, anxiety, depression. Um, in the U.S., which is a really big deal, happiness measures have been basically flat for college educated. And for the least educated, they have been plummeting for the last 30 years. So this is a big worry. So, so measures of unhappiness, disconnection from society, all of those things are, are a worry, particularly for prime age, less educated folks, mostly whites, but there's some evidence of, of other groups, but essentially amongst white, less educated, there's a disaster and it relates to as well to opioid deaths, um, deaths from cirrhosis of the liver and suicide. So this this is all going on at the same time we've seen recovery, but lots of folks around the world, especially in the United States are hurting.
2: So So let's see if we can find the cause for this. Some people are blaming social networks and that when you go on Instagram everybody else's life looks great and makes you feel terrible. There's a ton of yes. um, new studies on that. I don't I don't know if that's the cause. We're at levels of income inequality that we haven't seen for a long long time. And if you look at the middle class or or the paid people paid less than the middle class, they essentially have not seen a raise in 3 right. decades. Right. So is it all of these or are some of these factors more important well, than others?
1: We don't exactly know. I mean, it's all, it's all of those. But I think uh, I, I've been working on happiness, behavioral economics for a really long time. And, and I think if I would choose one thing we've learned from it, it's that relative things matter. People compare themselves to others. I mean, a, a, a funny statistic, not funny, a sad statistic. The three countries in the world that are the happiest, up in Denmark, Norway, Sweden, mm-hmm. they're the happiest countries in the world. They're also the countries in the world that have the highest suicide rates. Really? Yeah. So you, so exactly what you say is true. But I think what's happened- And a
2: decent amount of alcoholism, if I recall, <laughs> right? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, obviously part of it is you'd say, oh, it's because of the hours of daylight. But why would you have so many people happy? You can right. explain the suicide that way. So I think what we're seeing is People compare themselves to others. Perhaps with social media, it's easier to compare yourself to others. So, so that really matters. And as the in, as the income inequality has risen, wealth inequality has risen. The contrast becomes greater. So, I think that's what's going on. Uh, and we've also, I mean, think of that. Why why is happiness not risen in the United States? Perhaps it's that people compare themselves to others. So Barry buys a, a new BMW, and is it going to make you happy? Well, it's going to make you happy as long as Danny doesn't buy one. That's what the evidence looks like. So it's a a surprise that's a interesting puzzle, the happiness is flat people clearly compare themselves to others let's talk about some of the really
2: interesting things you discovered yes while doing your research for this book yes um let's talk about productivity do we have a productivity problem or do we have a measurement
1: issue well a bit of both um C- clearly the, the forecasts for productivity have been wrong. I mean, especially the greatest, the greatest error was made, at, back to what we were talking about. In 2010, austerity was imposed, and the government was forecast with this that would have no effect on productivity. And they've continued to forecast that productivity would rise. And we have the thing called a productivity puzzle, which is that we don't actually seem to have ha- had much productivity at, at all. And in fact, in the UK for the last three quarters, it's been falling. Um, Which is shocking to me, and the reason I always ask that question of
2: folks like you is that in my office, we run an asset management firm, and what we do with the 10 people in the Manhattan office 20 years ago would have taken a staff of 100. And so the ability to deploy software and technology and really crank out an enormous amount of work and content and the ability to reach both clients and... So whenever I see there's these productivity figures, I'm like, I don't know where they're looking, but, Barry, but they're not looking go, at a service business.
1: Well, let's business. go with two bits to it. So productivity is just output divided by people or hours or something. Right. So you kind of argued about output measure on the top, but I probably should argue about how, what you divide through by. Right. I mean, what's your hours? What's my hours? I have I, no I start idea.
2: around noon, and by 2 o'clock, I'm
1: heading home. <laughs> exactly. I mean, the, the problem is- exactly. No, I start no, very early. I start at
2: 4.30 in the morning, right, and I right. and the last thing I do before I go to bed is log on to well, Slack and look at what's going on in the office. Of,
1: but, but the problem, of course, is that- if, you, if you're not... I mean, the days where people went to a factory, they logged on at 8 o'clock and they went home at 4, you got eight That's hours, right? So, the, so not only anymore. is there a problem measuring the output, there's a problem of measuring the labour input. Mm-hmm. That's a really big deal. I mean, I think, however, it's, it is clear that... There is a problem, and Mm. the problem is that wages haven't been rising. I mean, the sort of connection everybody makes is if productivity was rising, wages ought to be rising. So they infer back that the lack of wage growth, therefore there must be a productivity puzzle. Some of it, of course, has to do with distribution. I mean, workers understand that if they get gains from productivity, they'd get higher wages, but perhaps not these days. Perhaps they think, OK, there's a big rise in productivity and the bosses are going to take all the gains. And there's an issue of that. We have the rising inequality issue. Do the workers actually think that if productivity was to rise, they would actually get a share of the spoils? And perhaps that's something that's changed. So that's kind of interesting. The Are you surprised at how quickly
2: the blush has come off the rose for the gig economy, like between Airbnb and Uber and even selling crap on eBay, there was an expectation that, hey, there's a way for a lot of people to pick up uh, some money on the side. Hasn't worked out the way people
1: expected. it. it hasn't worked out. And there's a big question about how big that gig economy is. I mean, there's a set of studies which were suggesting it's really, really big. And then a couple of years later, they had new data and they had to sort of pull it back.
2: But it's still, it's still substantial, sub- substantial, however you
1: look at it. But it depends how you define it. But, I mean, there's an issue, say, in the, U- the UK, it gets to go to there. There's been a huge rise in the UK in the self-employment rate. Right. Rate, you say, This is fantastic. Turns out that the earnings of the self-employed over the last five years have fallen in real terms by 20%. That doesn't surprise so, me at so, all. Because so, so.
2: when people get laid off, right. especially in a service or right. consulting world... You call yourself self-employed.
1: Right. So I I think, in a sense, the gig economy, this self-employed stuff, this is about fragile work. Many of these people can't get enough hours. That's the big story in my book. So there's
2: there's two – I'm going to interrupt you right here because there's two really interesting things. I want to talk about underemployment generally, but let's start with the specific. So I'm going to – two completely different companies, and you and I have discussed this previously. Walmart on the low end and then Starbucks on the high end they are both somewhat notorious for telling people in the beginning of the week, hey, here are your hours. Right. And for a while, Walmart store managers were incentivized to save money by slashing hours, Absolutely. which is why the stores looked like junk for a couple of years because until they reversed connect- that.
1: And workers don't have any connection to the firms. And I think what you've talked about is an inherent instability of work, an inherent insecurity of workers, and that's the sense that they have. In some sense, that explains the lack of wage growth. They're more concerned about keeping their jobs. Just before 2000, let me tell you a story. Just before 2008, I had a big discussion, argument with the governor of the Bank of England. He thought there was a huge wage rise coming. So I knew, <laughs> i wait for this, I knew the chairman, the head of the British Trade Union movement. I went to TUC House, Penthouse Suite, TUC House, and I said, his name's Brendan Barber. And I said, Brendan You have to be the arbiter. I won't tell anybody. Tell me, are you about to be able to go and get a huge wage increase? And he said, not for love nor money. He said just exactly what you and I have just talked about. Workers, and many of the workers he represents are women. He said they care about security. They care about being flexibility, being able to keep the job, they can drop the kids off at school, and if they need to take two hours off to go to the doctor with the kids, they can. And he said there is no chance on the God's green earth, that was in pre-2008, that there's big wage increases coming. And I think that's where the world is The point of the story is that balance probably wouldn't be existing if we were at full employment. As you would move towards full employment, workers would be able to say, I'm not taking that kind of job, thank you very much, Walmart. There's lots of better jobs out there and I'll go there. So I think the fact that this continues to exist says we're a long way from full employment. So how underemployed is the labor force in the United States? Well, it seems... And let, let
2: me get more specific. How many people are working multiple part-time jobs, and they wish they were working one full-time permanent position.
1: We don't exactly know that. We do have... Pretty bad measures of that in the United States. The measure, and I've worked on it a lot. Well, we have U6. Com- is yeah, not well, bad. Well, well U7, I can talk about at least better. I mean, we're talking about, I'm just looking at the latest numbers. In terms of the unemployment numbers, it's about 6 million. But if you simply want to look at this group, which is a particularly important group, which is part-time for economic reasons, right. it's about 4.5 million. So it's about three-quarters of the size or two-thirds, three-quarters of the size. Of the unemployed, but what really matters with those—meaning
2: those people want a full-time job, but they can't, can't find
1: them—and of course, the the big story in the United States, which we don't have for other countries, is there's lots of other people. It turns out. That want more hours. So, I'll give you an example. We'll call those folks involuntary part timers. What we know from around the world, we don't have a measure of this in the U.S. You say, "I'm part time. I've got 12 hours a week, but I'd like 20." And that turns out to be a really big phenomenon around really? the world. Yep. Yep. That seems to drive wage growth around the world. So we have a whole series of papers on this.
2: Now, you reference a phenomena called zero-hour jobs. Yes. Explain what that
1: is. So this is much like your, much like the story of a um, uh, Walmart. So in the UK, there's a thing called a zero hours contract Um, and most people absolutely hate it but they can't get anything better it's the following you can only have a contract with me on a Sunday night I will tell you how many hours this week you're going to have I'm going to tell you which days they're on and what time they are so I tell you on Sunday night you're going to work from 4 p.m. till midnight on Thursday that's it Um, and so obviously these workers say a this stinks mostly and b I would like more hours than I can get uh, and essentially what we see, as we've moved towards full employment a little bit, those numbers have fallen. But huge numbers of these workers, we're talking in the UK about a million workers in these And contracts. this
2: is an exclusive contract. Exclusive They can't work contract, with anybody else. Exclusive contract. So they're, they're waiting to know what it is. They can't fill in other hours they elsewhere. They can't fill
1: other hours elsewhere. So, And it's not just the number of hours. It's the timing of the hours, right? It's like, so like, how do you
2: do childcare or how, you, do you how do you organize your life around it? How
1: do you do that? And that's a really big deal. And I think... If you just look at those contracts, if you were at full employment, workers would be able to say, I'm not taking that. The definition of full employment, I always like from Beveridge, he says at full employment, workers are standing by waiting for, and I mean good, the word goods in, waiting for good offers of jobs to come in. We're a very long way from that. So if those contracts exist, how can the Fed or the Bank of England say we're any close to full employment? It makes no sense.
2: So the standard... Description or the standard explanation for why the labor market is where it is, is a combination of lots of people are undereducated or undercredentialed, which are two distinct issues. And you add that to the rise of globalization where good factory jobs leave and the rise of technology and automation, you know, just routine, repetitive jobs are easily replaced by a robot or software. Uh, changes the skill sets that are needed in a modern right. economy. How much is are those issues to blame and how much is it something else?
1: Well, I think those issues are clearly to blame. So the globalization phenomenon was going on prior to 2008. But I think we should think of 2008 as a structural break. And a structural break in the sense that employers were aware that their bargaining position is stronger. But workers were scared. Workers were scared that the phrase safe as houses, well, that's no longer true. Their houses went, their, their assets went. Uh, and, that, and that's a really big deal. I would just go back and I've tried to get people to think about the capital, uh, how capital displaces labour. In some sense, the reason it's doing it so strongly now is the relative prices. You could change the capital-labor mix by changing relative prices. Price of capital. Yeah, I mean, you could— Capital is practically free these days. Well, exactly. So in a sense, what you could do is to say, well, maybe what we should do is lower to firms the relative price of labor. We have been speaking with
2: Danny Blanchflower. He is the author of Not Working, Where Have All the Good Jobs Gone?, If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and come back for the podcast extras where we keep the digital technology rolling and continue recording our conversation about all things employment, financial crisis, and underemployment related. You can find that at iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, Bloomberg, wherever finer podcasts are sold. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. Be sure to check out my daily column. You can find that at Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
0: When cybercriminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers.
2: Welcome to the podcast. So let's, let's get to some of the questions that that we didn't get to during the broadcast portion because so much of this is quite fascinating so first let's talk about optimism the least optimistic people in america are poor whites not exactly. poor blacks or hispanics how does this
1: play into populism is it which came first well hard, hard to know which came first on on almost every measure you see the least educated, particularly prime age, least educated. Be I can say it in a number of ways: least optimistic, mm. most anxious, most unhappy. I have a pretty interesting measure, which is in one of the big surveys, they ask people um, about how many bad mental health days did you have. In the last thirty,
2: meaning clinical mental health days, or just just just, just the
1: popular just I'm taking taken a yeah, mental health day. Yeah, yeah, and- yeah. Just just straight asking them. They're really defiant. They're just, right. So it's, it's sort of done in a consistent way for everybody, and the number the number of bad mental health days for this group is, I mean, we're talking 10, 12 a month. Really? It, 10, 12 a month. And, the, wow. and I can just draw you a picture by age, which is just a huge hill shape. So right. so th- th- these folks have a high level anyway, and it rises, maximizing out at around 43, 44. So this is- So it starts low, it starts peaks. So that's
2: the opposite chart of what Scott Galloway showed in his book, um the Algebra of Happiness,
1: exactly. where you're very happy when you're young, yeah, so it I, bottoms I, I, yeah, middle age. I've written lots of stuff on what I call the U-shaping happiness, but right. just flip it over. Right. Flip exactly. this thing over. And what it turns out is that um, on all these measures, I can use words like anxious, depressed, lonely, not optimistic, all, all the isolated. So all of these things appear to be um, central to what's going on. These are entirely consistent with these deaths of despair. These same folks are the, are disproportionately the ones that are committing suicide so this is a new phenomenon in america and what are we doing about it i mean these are the, nothing. I mean, the, these are I, well, nothing people talk about deaths of despair i talk about cries of helplessness cries for help so in a sense the the story is these are cries for help that are remaining unanswered so i'm curious as
2: to the role that healthcare plays in this on two sides of yes. it First, I referenced when I was in the UK and Amsterdam during the crisis, people were pretty blasé. I think the United States, especially if you you have a family, you have kids, and you lose your job, you lose your health care. Right. That's got to be an enormous source of stress for people who are not working full-time or in danger of losing their jobs versus the right. European well, model. Well, I think
1: that's absolutely right. And I think-
2: it, And yeah. by the way, P.S. On the other side, when they do have a mental health issue- They can't afford to get the treatment.
1: Exactly. I I, I think a good example is the state that I live in, which is New Hampshire. Mm -hmm. New Hampshire is, I think, ranked second, third in um, um, opioid deaths. Really? Absolutely. So New Hampshire is a very strict. Well, Why? Why? Live free or die? Live free or die. There is no, basically no provisions there right. um, for drug rehabilitation. L- live free from live taxes free. for live a safety net? Tax- is that what you're yeah. implying? live free from the safety net. I mean, why is New Hampshire... A place where we're having all—I mean, low unemployment rates. I mean, right, a hugely low unemployment. Beautiful state. Rates. So, so obviously, there's, and there's, really
2: nice people there. They're well, almost
1: Canadians. Know, they're all, almost Canadians. Me. <laughs> uh, so I, uh, I didn't
2: realize New Hampshire was so that New high. A, like yeah. West Virginia, you, you kind of understand. You get West Virginia, right? you get Ohio,
1: but New Hampshire. So I think the provision of healthcare is a really big deal. The other big deal, actually, if you go back to. Um, opioid overdoses, I have a friend of mine who's a psychiatrist in the UK Mm -hmm. and he says what happens in America is that patients can doctor shop they can go to Barry and say, give me opioids, and you say no, and they'll find a Keeping doctor. Keeping them all for myself, they, right. They, uh, uh, they'll find some other doctor. This is not a phenomenon that's true in any other country. Really? Not true. And my friend says, what happens is they come to him as a psychiatrist, and he writes down in their national health record, you know, Barry's record requested says, request. requested, and I said, this by this guy is no, in the, no way I'm going to give it to him. So the next doctor, he goes. And he, he sees that. Says, he sees this. Dr. White says, da-da-da-da-da, No. I'm not giving it. Oh, so, so there's actually a national record. A national record. We don't have that here. So what's interesting is that presumably the doctors around the world, I mean, think of this, the doctors in Germany and France and Australia and Canada read the same academic journals sure. as the doctors here do, and they don't prescribe opioids. They don't have an opioid crisis. They don't have an
2: entire middleware no. group of nope. salesmen
1: right. pitching these things right. on a regular basis. Right. And they have a national health service, which just by the records we've talked about, prevents people going around doctor shopping. Can't happen. Can't do it. Doesn't happen. So this is an American phenomenon which we have not dealt with. And people have talked about it and the president's talked about, oh, we have we have to worry about didn't nothing. he have a
2: plan? I was told he had a plan. Chris Christie in said of all
1: sorts of really sensible things. I read the plan. Christie came out with a sensible, really? set. very it's worth First for everything. No, it's a great plan about what to do about it. done nothing. So this is a terrible American phenomenon that we need to fix, and it's within our powers and ability to fix to help these people who are dying from despair. That that that's just
2: shocking. So the the other thing in the book that really um, was a little bit surprising. Of the bright side to an otherwise dark story, the happiness of black Americans has risen strongly since the 1970s. It is today almost equal to that of white Americans. So here's the question. Is black happiness rising? Is white unhappiness falling? Or a little bit of
1: both? Yeah, A bit of both. Um, I mean, one of the things which is interesting, as I say, the phenomenon you and I have just been talking about was not actually a phenomenon for any any racial group other than whites so huh. the deaths of despair have not really been happening for Asians Hispanics or African Americans so that's an obvious thing the the in a way the, in a way you get happiness to rise because they haven't had the big burst of unhappiness but by construction mm-hmm. means that, that 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 that's happened so yes we've seen some some evidence of that in some ways the the, the labor economist in me learns this and i remember my old t- teacher told me it's many moons ago the people who do worst in the slump are the people who do best in the boom. Is that true? That's true. Because so I don't
2: think we've seen that here in this cycle.
1: Well, in general, that's true. But if, I mean, that sort of explains the question you just asked me about blacks. Um, I mean, I always thought the good example always was. Um, the young African Americans, the youth, the unemployment rate of young African Americans used to it, be uh, horrific. Used to be horrific, so like thirty five percent worse. That's fallen more than any other. I mean, it's not great now. It's we're in. The, we're but it's doubled, half of what it but was. It's, and I mean, it's, well, it's a third of what it was actually. Really? NBA, yeah. So wow. those numbers tend to fall. So we've seen we've seen some improvement of the of the least, um, of the ones who do worst. I mean, in, in essence, what you're likely to see in the downturn is those, that da- that turn comes quickest mm-hmm. for those groups. So I suspect as we get into this downturn, the story we've just been talking about will change quickly, mm-hmm. right? Um, so so, the, so the, the unemployment rate of um, college-educated, middle-aged white men is not going to rise that much if we go into a slump. Other groups will. So it's the cyclicality that's a big deal but we, ha- we have seen some improvements over time.
2: So in your research for the
1: book, what else popped out is really counterintuitive? Well, lots of things. I've just got a more recent one, which I've actually been working on. So the one thing in the happiness results that I was always puzzled by was that it appears in the data that children make you unhappy.
2: I've I've heard that and I have said- an
1: explanation in a new paper. I've worked really hard on this, and the story was with me was, well, if children made you unhappy, I mean, I had three kids. Wouldn't you think after the first one you'd go, oh, "I've had enough of this"? Well, by the time you <laughs> yeah. figure
2: out what a pain in the butt they are, right. you're three right. deep. Right? Well, maybe it's that. not till they're teenagers. That. But, that, but
1: uh... that's a, so. We've been working when it turns out that we have a data on a million Europeans, and it turns out that once you control for the fact that having kids is really expensive, mm-hmm. and um, so we have this data on how how much problems do you have paying your bills. Well, it turns out? What's your control for that? Children make you happy. Right. It's actually about. I mean, my and I use stories of my kids. I have I have two daughters with babies, and one of them says we buy hundred bucks a, a week in diapers right. and a bottle, a, a gallon of milk every day. And the cost of childcare is so high, and it, and it's just the cost. And a book I talk about well, we need to somehow or other help these folks, help the kids, help parents deal with the the, the high cost of of, of children. Um, but that so once you do that, it turns out the sign flips. It's mm-hmm. a very nice result because I, I think it never made any sense, right? It didn't make sense to say that you know kids didn't make you happy. You need to meet more meet people's more people's children, people's children. children. Right. You meet more people's <laughs> children. That's your kids. Other people's, make, people's your right. people didn't make me happy.
2: <laughs> so so that's pretty counterintuitive, but it makes sense once you explain it. Right. Give me one more that really jumped out.
1: Oh gosh, um, well I, I've got another one. Here's another puzzling one in the happiness literature: women are always happier than men. Really, but when you go to unhappiness equations, women are also more unhappy than men. Is
2: that just a confirmation
1: bias? No, if they, you're looking I, for it, you no, find it. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, there are uh, the great thing about being a data person. Well, you do this t- all the time. You look at the data, and there are puzzles that jump out. Right. At you. I mean, I think the, the the obviously big puzzle in economics is actually why at the at the given levels of unemployment that we have, why is wage growth so weak? I mean, that's the big puzzle of I mean, for a labor economist today. That's the great puzzle. At unemployment rates of 4% and lower in the past, around the world, wage growth will be nearer to 5% than anything else. And in this cycle, that's something we haven't seen. And policymakers have not been able to grapple with it. And the book explains it, basically.
2: So are you in Reinhardt and Rogoff's camp that says, following a financial crisis, We tend to get subpar GDP, subpar wage growth, slow gradual recovery, but not like the traditional regular cyclical recession slash recovery. That it's a much more drawn out and much more modest recovery. Look at Japan, look at Sweden, look at Mexico. Couldn't have said it better. I completely
1: agree. But I think in a sense that's a really big problem because I don't think policymakers got that. I mean, Clearly. You, they just didn't see it. And they sort of, and all the forecasts they made, and we think about the Fed says, we're going to be able to raise rates because everything's going to be back to normal and fine. The Bank of England says, you know, within 18 months, we'll be back and everything. So they, absolutely what you said is true. It's the biggest error the policymakers have made. They didn't get it. And that's exactly where we are now, that there's a structural break. And what it means is actually 4% unemployment. I mean, the book spends a lot of time thinking about mm-hmm. 4% unemployment is nowhere near full employment. Mark Carney asked me the other day, he said, to me, I was at a meeting, he said, Danny, how low do you think you, the, the, the NERU is in the UK? That means the the, mm-hmm. the full employment rate of And I said around two and a half. I was going to say 2%. Yeah, but two, okay. two, 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 two and a half, some number like that. And I think the reality. is was aghast when you yeah, said that, yeah, right? Yeah, aghast. Shocked. And, and I've said, and now what you think is, okay, so now we see unemployment rates of 3.6. The big deal, actually, in the last six months or so, unemployment's continued to fall. And the wage growth which looked like it was picking up has reversed itself it's actually slowed back down again and and when you around look at the,
2: the world that, I'll, I, I can explain that with because I saw this coming because a big chunk of that wage growth came from new minimum wage laws Absolutely at the state. Right.
1: And municipality level. Absolutely. And, this, and in the UK, actually, this month we've seen a little bit of a pickup, and the reason was exactly that. You saw a big rise in the public sector pay, which hadn't happened for a long time. And one of the big deals around the world, I mean, the UK is a good example. In 2010, the government imposed a 1% pay freeze in the public sector, which free, which you know feeds through the rest of the economy. So you push down on wages. They probably, spend less money. They spend less, but what it means is the full employment rate of unemployment has got lower. Goes lower right. and, the, and the Fed made. I mean, the Fed's been saying all along, "Oh, the the narrow is four and a half, five percent," and because unemployment's at three and a half, we have to raise rates. Turns out they got it wrong. Raising rates was an error, as I said, and you probably know. I've said every month for the last twenty-five right. that right. that was a complete error, and it looks to be right. So let me let me push back
2: on on the Fed in the United States. Where are we, like around 2%, that range? Yeah, 225 to 50, I think it is. So so here's the question that I think people like President Trump and people who are very dovish on rates, um, here's the pushback to them. We took rates to an extraordinarily low level, that we were at zero for how many years, plus QE, and that now that we're a decade past the financial crisis – These ultra-low rates have rewarded capital, but they haven't rewarded labor, and what we need to do is normalize rates so that they're at a more reasonable level that will force people back into a traditional economic environment. I'm not saying I buy into that, but that's the pushback. No, that's the pushback.
1: Well, the first thing I think policymakers like me, central bankers like me, who sat in 2008 and saw what was going on, I mean, remember, we watched RBS fail, right. we, the largest bank in the world by assets. We watched Lloyds Bank fail. So the scale of this shock was has been underestimated, underestimated by many, I think. And that goes back to your well-said statement about why the recovery has taken so long was the scale of that shock was so huge. And I think the argument to say we need to normalise, well, maybe that's true. That doesn't tell you when to normalise. Okay. You probably need to wait and look and see. Um, the problem about a normalisation is... If this shock is greater than you think and you're further from the Nehru than you think, you say we need to na- raise rates for when the recession comes, but by raising rates, you cause the recession. Certainly I mean, an obvious, an obvious an play- obvious twist in a place like the UK. I mean, I was on an airplane once. And what happens, I'll tell you the story. So what happens in the UK is people are on variable rate mortgages. At the right. start of the crisis, they're-
2: Which, are- by the way, the
1: US fixed rate is is kind of unique Kind of unique. US. So let's go with this story. Five and a half percent. Most people are, pay, are paying 150 over over bank rate, so five and a half percent interest rates. That gives you seven. I'm on an air. So rates get cut to one. I'm on an airplane. The captain of the of the British Airways plane is standing in front of me with a bottle of champagne. I say, <laughs> aren't you aren't you supposed to be flying the plane? And he says, no, but the guys in the front sent me back to say thank you very much for getting their mortgages down to you, to me. Oh, and that's The captain hilarious. hands the captain hands me the bottle of champagne, and they all appeal applaud me. And stuff. But that's because you lowered their monthly I lowered payments. their monthly payments. So now in the UK. <laughs> <laughs> think of this so the, so so the the mortgage price in the UK bank rates 0.75 so let's make it easier people are paying two and a quarter the second you start to raise rates they those feel. mortgages are going to go up and the right. people who are hurted remember the people who who have who are six percent real terms less than they were have had a pickup because of the mortgage sure but as soon as you do that you take comes. it away so the answer is that it um, the, the, clearly looks like it was a mistake to raise rates. I mean, who knows by how much? And the market has now essentially priced in what I say in the book. This was a huge error. The markets are pricing in, I think, I haven't looked in the last 20 minutes, but last time I looked, they're pricing in three cuts by, by Christmas. Um, we, three, three cuts, were, that's we, amazing. Three cuts in the market by Christmas.
2: Is it safe to say the Bank of England has a greater... So let me back up a sec. The argument in the US is the Fed only affects the Fed funds rate and the bond market determines the long bond rate right. and through that, mortgages. However, the UK, what you're saying is yes. the Fed, the Bank of England has a much Very greater impact direct. on people's pocketbooks uh, than in the US. It's absolute. a little, has to work its way through well, a Barrett, I,
1: I got to tell you, tell you a story. I was in the UK last, okay, last week. And going doing the rounds in the financial papers was a guy in Denmark. So I think mm-hmm. we're talking this morning about Draghi talking about rate cuts. They showed someone's new way, new mortgage contract in Denmark with a negative interest rate. That's amazing, right? So I mean, so you okay. imagine the I'll ECB. Take two I'll take two houses, right? I'm- hey, I'll let you in on
2: a little secret. I'm in my house. September is five years. My expectation for interest rates were such that I did the two seventy 270, two point seven five. Right mortgage that was variable thinking I got seven years before this goes up and seven years from now I don't think rates are gonna be much higher. And so far so far I've been right. We'll we'll see we'll, we'll, we'll see. see how accurate that ends up being. But my we're... wife was not happy no, with that. No, no. Well, but it's worked it's, out okay. Well, like,
1: I mean I, I just have in my head and and people listening to this podcast all in two thousand and eight August in the UK the mar- interest rates were 55 and, and the markets had priced in 5.5% for the next three years. Right. Totally wrong. Totally and completely wrong. Right. Markets so get it wrong so all the time. Markets get it time. wrong. But I think in the UK particularly on the mortgage front there's been an impact and the balance between savers and, uh-huh. and borrowers has really been impact. But what it means is the ability of the Bank of England to do what you've talked about. Oh we need to raise rates so we can normalize things. You wipe out the housing market if right. you do that. So the ability of the Bank of England almost ever now to raise rates, say above one, is basically off the table.
2: I don't know if you know Torsten Slock of course, Deutsche Bank. Of course, from Deutsche Bank. He has this fabulous chart. I saw the
1: chart where, he's, where he talks about the market's got it wrong. I saw that last week. Always. The market know, always know, gets Fed know. Fed actions wrong. You I would know. think
2: the market would have some insight. So much for the wisdom of crowds, well, right?
1: Well, it's not just that. I mean, remember that, in a sense, what they plotted was what the Fed said it was going to do. I mean, that, that the market— Even, Does the Fed know what it's going to do, honestly? Well, the dot plots are really interesting right now, and I've been giving presentations recently. If you look at the dot plots from March, um, it looks like half the people think there will be a rate rise in 2019, and the majority think there will be at least two in 2020. And the Increases. Con- increases. And the, if you look, as I mean, it's say, I'm about three hours out of date here, right. but the, over the last week, um, by April of next year, the market has been moving back and forth between four or five cuts by April. And the Fed says, so this is a really big disconnect, folks. So the question, and Torsten's chart is a good one, the question is whether the markets have got it right this time. My suspicion is they do.
2: So let's talk a little about Jerome Powell and uh, his relationship with President Trump. This is not the typical president and presidential appointee you would think this is an Obama deep state holdover. This is his guy. Well, so is Richard Clarke.
1: And, and, so so and so are a number of, of others. I mean, to put it, to, the chairman to, and the vice right. chairman have to, both to, been appointed. Right. To be to be frank, and the book does the book actually I actually of the view that Trump is right. I mean, I think Trump is right in this case that interest rates are too high and they've made a mm-hmm. mistake. So let's put that on the table for different reasons, but we for reasons I lay out. Um, obviously, the issue about the independence of the of the central Fed bank, yeah. of central as a big deal but i think the discussion is not quite right i think the question is the assumption is you allow the central bank to be independent because disproportionately it gets things right more right than any any other way the problem is if the central banks gets it wrong, and it does occasionally, and it, does occasionally, and it certainly got it wrong in 2008. By September 08, they still really didn't know the US had been in recession since November, since December Right. So obviously, right. over the last decade, the fact that the Fed has got it wrong so many times does kind of bring the argument, that changes the argument a bit to say they should be independent. So the pressure on them obviously is really high. They're supposed to be independent. But in this case, it's hard to argue Trump isn't right. But for the wrong reasons. But whatever. He, he's right, be,
2: right. He wants, the, for the wrong reason, right. he's concerned about re-election. Right. Forget that reason. Just you're, as, I'm you're an saying, economist. You're saying a, a labor market economically, gut. Economically, it makes, it's clear everything yes. is slowing down and there's a yes. recession eventually uh, right. out there.
1: And, and I take the view as a, I mean, as a person who voted on interest rates. Well, for goodness sake, folks, what we did last time, we didn't get there t- soon enough. We got there late. I think there's very little downside risk to an early rate cut that might calm markets. It Could might cause some inflation. Great. We'll have a bit. <laughs> so let, let's talk about two
2: things that are both a little wonky. The first is Northern Rock, which you mentioned. Yes. So in the U.S., following the Great Depression, we set up a federal deposit insurance company where all the banks pay a tiny, tiny fraction of their deposits, and in the event of a collapse, their account holders are made whole, and theoretically bank runs are a thing of the past. The UK doesn't have that identical setup, well, does it? Well,
1: it had something a little different. I, I actually learned something about Northern Rock last week. Yeah. Which was actually, well, why is Northern Rock in the north? Turns out it's just in the north. The reason it was there, apparently people tell me, was that the other banks wouldn't lend there. Mm-hmm. And so Northern Rock went there and could start making loans to people, had no incomes and no real ability to pay. and was making pretty bad loans. Uh-huh. So that was the reason it was there. Okay, something else that happened. They lose a little on each loan, but they make it up, right, in, vo- make it volume. up in volume. and right. they actually didn't have many branches. There was only about like forty branches. So when the bank failed, many there were no there were two branches in London. There was a, and basically they were really tiny. So when you have two desks and a thousand people standing outside, <laughs> you're in a little you're in a little trouble. But here, <laughs> I think, here funny. I think is something that people haven't noticed, and actually people tried to hire me. And I refused to go. So what happened was one of the, so here's a big deal. Many of the people who worked at Northern Rock had their pensions and had had shares in Northern Rock as part of their as part of their Ooh, savings. So they were wiped bad. out. The, the savers were protected, but unlike in the U.S., the shareholders were wiped out. Meaning the bank, the Bank of England valued the shares of Northern Rock at zero. Right. Well, and they were entirely wiped. Listen they, the bondholders
2: suddenly right. have something right. but the equity holders the it, equi- that's equity equity the same had, as the US yes
1: but the other thing of course is i say that the employees the employees were really hurt because a lot of them had share options and all the rest of, and that You know wiped. how
2: many Enrons and Lehman's right. do we do have need, to see uh, before uh, people uh, yeah.
1: you know look at look at General Electric look at right.
2: GM right but how the, many right. this comes up over and over again and and unfortunately people don't learn that but, lesson
1: but, Barry, here was the other big lesson. I mean, I remember at the time, and I was, I got into trouble because I said, "Well, obviously, if you look at Northern Rock, there are other there are other institutions who look very like." them. Turns out in the UK there was Bradford and Bingley, and Alliance and Leicester, who looked just like Northern Rock. And how did they do? Failed. <laughs> there you go. Just fa- The only issue, Barry, was when, wasn't it? If it was when they're going to so, fail. So,
2: so who makes the account holders whole?
1: <sighs> well, I I suspect we have to well unclear maybe maybe these macro prudential instruments maybe ways of ensuring that in the good times you know coverage is made so that so that in the end uh, in the bad times the 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 public don't have to come in and rescue those folks it's a it's a big issue but there
2: is no fdic type
1: now there is now now after northern rock the government had to come and step in and say we will protect um, all the told, it was actually a funny story. The government went in in the morning, if I recall, and said, right, we're going to protect everybody who's a saver in Northern Rock. Then they had a little problem, which is everybody had money in an Irish bank went, ha-ha, I can move all my money to Northern Rock. So on the day that they did it, money poured into Northern Rock and then the government had to say, hang on, folks, we're not going to guarantee the world's savings. Right. It's only going to relate to people who were here last week. Right. So that, But that was a big fundamental change and savers are now protected. But remember, the big difference in a way in the UK, the, uh, the big turn down in the world crisis, which the world didn't know, was the failure of RBS, much more important than the, Bank much more important than Lehman Brothers or anything else, and the reason why why is that? oh oh world well, so so let so the story was I mean I had I, Alistair Darling tells the story that he was at the financial meeting of the European Finance Ministers on October the seventh two thousand and eight, mm-hmm. and he gets a call from RBS and the chairman says to him, uh, I can't make a payment today, Chancellor. Um, I I need, I can't make a 50 billion dollar payment tomorrow, and they told him that. If told Alistair if you don't rescue RBS, the, 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 there's a very good prospect that every credit card and cash machine in the world will fail. So six <laughs> central banks together—that's the—that's the biggest moment of the crisis. Six central banks together cut rates, and if anybody in the world sees six central banks together cutting rates, and led by the UK, you should have been told, the global markets are collapsing and something happening in Britain. So it was the Fed, ECB, Bank of Japan, Bank of Switzerland, Bank of, the Bank and the Bank of England. That was the day that everything collapsed.
2: Huh, quite fascinating. All right. And then the last wonky thing I have to ask you before we start our speed round has to do with the Phillips curve. You do a lot of work with that. For the layperson, explain what the Phillips curve is. And why it's so wrong?
1: Well, that's that's hard to do in simple. Thirty so, seconds. In simple, Bang. The answer why why it's all wrong is that we used to think that the unemployment rate is what drove wages down. Turns out that's not true anymore. They're disconnected. They're disconnected. So what happened in the past? Firms' pay was impacted by the unemployed outside the firm. Mm-hmm. Well, what's happened today is underemployment's the story. Two thirds of the workers over here got the hours that they want, and they've got temporary workers all sorts of freelancers in there, paid less, and the workers on the one side of the room know that they can be replaced by the people on the other side of the room. Turns out the Phillips Code has to be written in underemployment. Underemployment is the story post-2008. All the stuff about the unemployment rate is wrong because it doesn't do anything since 2000. And the, and the big deal is the underemployment rate hasn't returned to its pre-recession level.
2: Which makes me raise the final question, which is we've seen union membership plummet in the US plummet yep, in the UK the world. How important is the failure of unions the death of unions to to driving both the underemployment and the economic insecurity of the employed?
1: Uh, I mean, that's had a really big, big impact. But in some sense, you have to step back and say, well, what caused the decline in unions? And the answer is pretty much global forces. Mm-hmm. Globalisation made it very much harder for a union to raise the price. So think in a global market, we're selling at 10, union comes along, rate gives benefits to its workers, the price is 11, and the firm gets wiped out because there's global forces. So the problem for unions is that you know they've been wiped out by global forces. So... That's that's further made, made workers' more jobs more insecure, more unstable, and less well-paid. Hmm. Good answer.
2: All right, so let's go to our speed round. These are our favorite questions we ask <laughs> all our guests, um, and I've tailored them specifically to you.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, so tell us, what was the first car you ever owned, year, make, and model?
1: I can't even remember. I mean, I was, I'm an interesting person. I didn't have a driving license until I was 27. Yeah. I lived in London. So you didn't and need I one? didn't need one. And I, I mean if you had a parking space in London, you could never leave the car take the car away from it because <laughs> you could never find one again. So I had a mini. It was my first car. And, and a real mini, but not mini. the new BMW. No, no, Minis. no. A real mini with wooden panels on it and little doors that it <laughs> would break down all the time. They are great. What's the most important thing people don't know about Danny Blancheflower? Um Ooh. It's a really tough one. I used to be a school teacher.
2: You're still a school teacher. Well that
1: maybe may be that is the maybe right. There you go. So you used to teach
2: <laughs> yeah, uh, grammar school, high yeah, school?
1: Yeah, I, I actually taught in a school that got I got paid danger money. <laughs> to teach in a school. I decided it was easier to go and talk to people like you, Barry, and get yeah. all that get that kind danger of aggravation. Baby. That kind of aggravation.
2: Tell us who your early mentors were.
1: Well, the big deal actually was my dear friend Richard Freeman, mm-hmm. who's a Dartmouth class of sixty four, the famous man to always always wear hats. who famously wears hats to everything. But he's a great empirical economist, and just taught me to go and look at the data. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a, that was not something the economists did. They, for a very very long time, the role of data was seen as, you know, secondary, think, second to what other people do. So everybody's favorite question:
2: Tell us some of your favorite books—fiction, nonfiction, market-related, economy-related,
1: whatever. I always liked. Um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Hundred Years of Solitude. Mm-hmm. That just is something I've read so many times. It just seemed that like man was a genius and that and I I didn't really realize that every other people thought he was a genius too, and gave him the Nobel Prize in in literature. But I've been a nonfiction wonk forever. I mean I've just I mean it's my wife's so bored with me. I read economics books. So give us what, what oh. do you
2: think is the most interesting, unexpected economics book you read recently?
1: Oh my goodness! Well, I actually, I read, I read this great book by Keynes written it's a, a paper I've been reading endlessly that nobody knows about, written in 1931. Mm-hmm. And the reason I really like what's, it, what's is, the name of the paper? Well, it's a, it's about it's about his theories on unemployment. But I think it's I think I mean it's a great Keynes paper should, on unemployment. Well, I kind of remember reading. Something no, but you about didn't. What you read was Keynes talking about unemployment rise after it had happened. This is a book. I mean, it's, it's exactly what you have kind of been talking about. He's asked in 1930. 30, what do you think's coming? And he says, I, it's not really about the crash. So it's not Reinhardt Rowe got it. It's actually Keynes who has it. And he talks about if you don't do the things that we've talked about that you need to do. I mean, this is a phrase I've used many times, the long dragging conditions of semi-slump. So I keep going back to that. But the other one I read, and I think it's a really important one, is that I read a book by Beveridge. I don't know if you know Beveridge. It's a great story. Mm-hmm. When, when Churchill in 1943 said, what's the world going to look like? After, I come, after we get over the war, tell us what full employment would look like. And Beveridge writes this thing and he says, I thought, and he says, I think unemployment, the full employment rate of unemployment is 3%. But in a 1960 prologue, he said, Keynes wrote to me and said I can think it could be much lower. And in the UK it turns out, unemployment averaged 1.5% for that whole period. So that's about what full employment means for the work, for people coming back from the war. And I think that's a great book to read, Beveridge on Full Employment. So in 1943, You know, they thought about these things, and in 1931 they thought about, and the world repeats. And and we today have the beverage curve, right? Directly from directly directly from beverage, but it's a great. And and he talks. He he talks about what the welfare state should look like. But I would encourage people to go and look at it. Think about what full employment means, and and it's you can just cross out 1931 and you can write in 2020. And it's the same thing. It's the same thing. And so what, what do policymakers do? They didn't read that stuff.
2: I have to ask you about a book uh, that you reference. the author of that is sitting at my shelf at home waiting to find its way into my queue, which is Lord Sidelsky's
1: biography of Keynes. Keynes. He's a dear friend of mine. We've written things. I've got to tell a great story. Um, he has a great book called The Master, right? Uh, the Return of the Master, and he sent it to me. And the whole time in my life, this has never happened. He sent it to me. I got home, my dog had eaten it. This is completely true. And I had to get another one. My dog had torn it to pieces. I've literally had that happen. I've literally.
2: um, William (laughs) Goldman's book, um, Adventures in the Screen Trade, I'm reading because Goldman's position is. Nobody in Hollywood knows anything. Right. They passed on Star right. Wars. They right. passed on Raiders. They're all terrible. I made the mistake of putting it down for two minutes. The puppy destroyed it. Right. We have a Portuguese water dog. Right. And I had to order a new one and keep it at so, a high so, shelf.
1: So that and then there's another story to tell you. So Skidelsky is not only the uh, biographer of Keynes. Uh-huh. There's a there's a there's a good kind of story about what's, what's special about Skidelsky. He lives in Keynes' house. Oh, really? That's fascinating. Is it the, a coincidence no, no, he, or did he seek he it out? Seeked it out. To seek it out. So there's a great great story. Talk about um, inhabiting Skiddle. somebody's Skiddle, persona. Skiddle's, he writes in the back of my book as well. So, and Robert and I have written The Lord, The Lord Skidelsky. You've got to call him The Lord. He um, was, I,
2: I think I briefly great, met him great, here at Bloomberg. Yes. He came through. They do lunches for different yes, authors and yes. stuff. And, um... He's somebody else. I, I have
1: to well, have he, here cuz he, he, he's yes, he's great and he and he talks about the return of the master, but in the book he talks about sadly the return of the master was not as, you know, was not a as big a return as it ought to have right. been. Right. It should it should have it been a big drum roll. Should have been a, big drum, it, have been a big drum roll.
2: Um so tell us about a time you failed and
1: what you learned from the experience. Oh, goodness. Well, I I think I failed. The biggest fail I have made was in August 2008 and I've been calling a recession and we got the first call of what output in Q2 was going to be, and it and it was plus point two, point two, plus point two, right? And I've been saying forever and i and i didn't believe and i'm sure the revisions eventually (laughs) took it negative minus 0.7 right there you go But that was i mean i just i mean in a sense it was the biggest fail because i doubted myself so seriously really oh i really thought i've got this so wrong and we did this terrible report in august 2008 that i signed up to which said no recession's coming and i went home and i thought well I've, i've either got to work this out i've got to work out either i'm an idiot and i'm completely wrong and i have to quit or i'm right and i went away and i thought it's one of these and i talked to everybody and eventually I decided that I was right. But that was, the, in a sense, the big fail was getting it wrong, doubting what I'd said before, and just being tortured. And then eventually deciding, okay, I'm right. And then I did a big interview, and I, then I went whole hog on it. But I just doubt that number just made me think I got this so wrong.
2: So heading into the financial crisis. So I'm all about what do we really know? Right. What Metacognition. What do we think we know that we're wrong about? Exactly. What do we not know that we not know? But heading into the financial crisis, I had no doubt right. that my forecast for a deep recession and a market crash was right. And the reason- but Did you have
1: a moment of doubt, though?
2: No, never. The whole time. Right. What what was shocking to me was that nobody else saw it. I couldn't understand. Well, right, and the data, right. point, the data point that made it wholly unambiguous was this chart. I, I want to say I first- Picked it up from Ned Davis in like oh3 mm-hmm. or 04 mm-hmm. and then I started looking so I should have been looking for disconfirming data, um, which I could not find. And I started looking for confirming data, which was everywhere. So it's a historical relationship in the United States between median home price and median income.
1: It's the same. I have the same in the UK. Exactly the same so, series. So you look at that yeah, data yeah. series, but, absolutely and
2: for decades, decades, decades. Yeah. It, you know, it bounces around no, no, between right two and three, yep, two and yep, three, two. Yep. And suddenly it goes four, five, six. It's like orders of magnitude. So <laughs> so based on that chart, yeah, I, thought I tried to find yep. other things. When you looked at the cost of home ownership versus the cost of renting, same thing. So, you know, a long-standing relationship, <laughs> and then it spikes. Right. And then the third one, right, the third absolutely. chart, was the value of the housing stock in the United States relative to GDP. And that was yeah, a little more yeah. vol- volatile but like around 0, 020304 0, 0, it just spiked. So my mm-hmm. takeaway was either everybody's getting a giant raise or housing drops 20
1: right. 30 40%. So I, I the I, the second one I didn't really know about. The first I did. And that we but could, it's effectively the well, same I, well, chart. Of course, absolutely. Because rent no, no, course, is tied to – I hadn't it, thought of it basically it is a right. different
2: way to look at the same so, thing. Right. Rent is related to so, income, right.
1: and inco- uh, rent to ha- ownership is ends up in the same. Barry, if you th- go – in the UK, exactly the same. We call it house price to earnings ratios. In the UK, it averages about three to three and a half. By 2006-7, it had got to, two, to 5.9. And That's 12 12 right. And 12 in London. Okay, 12. 12. So then two. what was interesting, if you look back – a series of people on the npc some before me coming to it spent an awful lot of time arguing why this time was different and why the why the ratio had permanently changed it was something about demographics yeah, it was yeah. something about i mean let's There's go with nonsense. let's go with, exactly let's go with nonsense and they said you shouldn't read anything into this because this is all permanently changed and they think they um yeah i i, I oh, nonsense and so the justification for this rise was that you know, literally the markets are so much more efficient than they would be. And they read Lucas, who said, I, you know, in his Nobel Prize winning speech, I have shown you that depressions can't ever happen again. All is absolutely <laughs> wonderful. And Barry rightly laughs. That's right.
2: You're you're listening to Confirmation Bias Radio <laughs> with Danny and Barry. Um, so our last couple of questions. Um, <laughs> so what do you do outside of the office for fun? What do you do to relax or uh,
1: when kick I, back? yeah. I like to go cycling with my wife and I go cycling, but I... Had trouble with my ankle some time ago, and I used to play quite a lot of golf. So you and I met, I think, the first time fishing. That you is correct. So I've taken up a lot of fishing with our old friend David Kotok, who yes. was here this morning. And uh, I've ta- I've become a avid fisherman. I'm going next week back to Florida to go fishing again. A little bone fishing? No, or? I actually I'm a snook guy. I like. I've to go never s- gone snook fishing, gonna, but i like to. you're invited, mate. I have I'm a house. Down. I have a house on the water. When are you coming? Let's go. I Let's actually
2: like the west coast of Florida better right. well, than the east coast. So we f- not just fish, for fishing, well, but you're invited. It's, nice. it, it's the Midwesterners as opposed to us New Yorkers. They're much nicer. And you're a catch and release fisherman, I'm um, a right? hashtag catch and release. What sort of advice would you give to a millennial or someone beginning their career who was interested in either
1: economics or later labor economics or monetary policy? Um, I I, I would go and read an, an article out yesterday by Nobel Prize winner um, Jim uh, um, Ackerov. Who talks about the importance of trying to understand problems? Economics has become just math. People are trying very mathy, very mathy, and I think the story is focus on the patterns in the data. Try and think, you know, what are what what important question are you trying to answer? focus on an important question okay that's sort of contrary to many of the things that have been in economics and yes you have to publish in the top 5 que- journals and i think it's a really good place to come and think well what 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 do people in the world actually care about tell them focus on issues where you can answer questions
2: so you i think that your approach is the right approach is that is that that's overstating exact, it or it,
1: no uh, sorry it's, it's george ackeloff yes and his in his paper is about hard economics which is go and do the math and lose sight of of, of the real. lose sight of what the heck are we doing? I mean, I was taught the great story. I was taught by that's the walkabout. Get right, out from Exactly, the economics of walkabout and, and uh, walking about. And my old supervisor said to me, "Danny, care about the well-being of the man on the, or the woman on the Clapham omnibus." For American audience, Clapham is a part of London, and an omnibus is the bus before which was towed by the horse. But it's about <laughs> think about the well-being of the ordinary person. Perhaps the ordinary. Prime age, less educated person living in Pennsylvania, West Virginia. Don't lose sight of that. And I think if that's what you do, I mean, think of what Deaton and Case are doing. They're trying to understand how to improve the well-being of the country. That's an honorable estate.
2: And hence your focus on unhappiness, stress, physical pain, and underemployment.
1: And I say to my students, this is so much better than so much of economics that focuses on, you know, trying to add a squiggle to a diddle. (laughs) (laughs) To put it technically. A squiddle to a diddle. When when I
2: download and go to read an economics paper, I will go through the first, I don't know, 5, 10, 12 pages, and then I'll hit the page that's just a sheet of calculations and formulas, and I tap out because I can't follow that,
1: and neither can most of the lay people. And we don't have to because, I mean, go back to the greatest story of the – maybe we can end on this great story. So the queen – goes to the London School of Economics and opens the new Department of Economics. And the chair says to her, there's 150 economists here. And the queen turns to him and says, well, if there are 150 economists here, how come they missed the Great Recession? And they turned to her and they said they were working on something else. (laughs) That's great. Our final question,
2: what do you know about the world of labor economics today that you wish you knew 30 years ago when you were first ramping up in this space? Wow.
1: I mean, everything, everything. I mean, I didn't really understand that there were patterns in the data. I didn't really understand how related things were. um, And that in the 30-odd years that I've been looking at the labor market, how little improvement that I'd seen for the average person. That's some era, that 30-year period. That's a shocking story you
2: started just as the yeah. wages decided to freeze.
1: Right, right i mean in a sense the story the story is about the spread of global forces and it's just about the spread of inequality so i mean I, we've done well we've done very well people people around us have have, have not done so well I fa- we we have family members i mean my my i have three kids and they're all struggling. They're struggling to leave home. They're struggling to put the kids in childcare. They're struggling to buy house. They're struggling to pay off their huge student debts. And I think the the word I used there was was used advisedly. It's, it's life's a struggle. Quite quite fascinating.
2: We have been speaking with Danny Blanchflower, author of "Not Working: Where Have All the Good Jobs Gone?" and uh, current economics professor at Dartmouth. Um, If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes where you could see any of the previous 250 such conversations that we've had over the past five years. We love your comments, feedback and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack staff that helps us put these conversations together each week. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Atika Valbron is our project manager. Michael Boyle is my producer. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk?